0: We're in the Gospel of Mark, looking at Mark chapter 9, the first part of it. I'll tell you in just a moment what the page number is in our pew Bible, 1,004. Thank you, Nate. I have to share briefly, though, I had pulled out for Dan specifically, but uh, Herman Bavinck's The Wonderful Works of God. It's a one-volume systematic theology, and I meant to quote this this morning, and then I uh, left it in my bag, so I'll share the quote now. Consider this just a little bonus addendum from this morning or encore, something like that. God, this is how it begins, the first sentence, God and God alone is man's highest good. God and God alone is man's highest good. Proverbs 9, we're looking at verses 12 through 13, uh, 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 2 through 13, the transfiguration, This story is basically the exact center of the gospel of Mark. It comes right in the middle. Remember, this middle section that we're in begins with Jesus asking his disciples over in chapter 8, verse 29, who do you say that I am? Uh, And then that that question and Jesus' explanation of his mission Yes, I am the Christ, but this is what it means to be the Christ. This is what I came to do. Really sets the agenda for this second half of the book. Let's read this remarkable story. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to Elijah with Moses, uh, appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. of him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I think I'm going to move this to the other side. Maybe it's more visible to more people. Maybe not. Ben, do you look like you have an objection? No. Oh, okay. Certainly <laughs> not. I think I'm going overkill after last week, realizing I didn't have any good questions. At this time, we're going to have questions. So, uh, first question. Begins, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. I wonder, do you remember some other times in the Gospel of Mark when those three are singled out to go with Jesus? Yeah, Nate. Yeah, Jairus's daughter, that Peter, uh, he sends everybody else out of the house and brings only Peter, James, and John with him. Yeah, one other time that the three together are invited to go with Jesus. Yeah, Lulu. That's right. Yeah, in the Mount of Olives. uh, All the disciples go with Jesus, but he goes a little further and brings Peter, James, and John with him. So they seem to be uh, somehow a little bit closer group within the larger group. It's interesting, Peter we've just seen get rebuked in chapter 8, and then as we come ahead into chapter 10, After the third time that Jesus predicts his death, it's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who come to him and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Uh, So they seem to be Jesus's inner circle, and yet in this section, it's Peter, James, and John who seem to have the most trouble understanding. Okay, Peter, James, and John are with Jesus, and after six days, he took them with him, and he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Okay, let's pause there. And if these pens work, they do, good news. Let's brainstorm. What are some other prominent mountains in the Bible? Prominent mountains in the Bible. Yeah, Nate. Mount Sinai. Lulu. Mount Zion. And what's on Mount Zion? (laughs) Trick question. Well, not a trick question, but it's the temple, the Temple Mount. So it's a little bit of a mountain in Jerusalem where the temple is. Good job, though. Uh, There's a a good Jewish scholar named John Levinson, and he has an introduction to the Old Testament called From Sinai to Zion. Those two mountains kind of encompass a lot of what's going on in the Old Testament. Other prominent mountains in the Bible. Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel. Okay. Yep. We're going to talk about that again, so that's good. What happens on Mount Carmel? Yep, that's right. This challenge between Elijah and, and the prophets of Baal. Yeah, other, other prominent mountains. Yeah, Dan. Oh, sorry. Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb. Yeah. Which I think is another name for Sinai, but good. Well, I think so. <laughs> we can debate it at dinner. Yeah, Dan. Uh, Ebel, and Ebel and Gerizim. that's right. I should have put those here if I'm doing them in. They're a little bit more obscure, but yeah, in the book of Joshua where they go and they read the covenant, renew the covenant in the land. Yeah, Nate. my the obscure ones. Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, yeah. I... Uh, Well, that's a good question. Mount Moriah is Genesis 22 when Abraham sacrifices Isaac. Um, uh, Let me remember exactly. I won't remember the chapters, but in Chronicles, when it talks about buying the field where the temple is, there's some uh, or the space where the temple is going to get built. There's kind of a connection there, which makes it seem like, yeah, it is the same mountain that becomes Mount Zion. But uh, but earlier it's called Mount Moriah. Yeah, good. Good collection of mountains. Okay, if we're going to pull this together, what's some common themes? Let's see if I any more. Deuteronomy 34 ends with, with Moses going up onto a mountain, uh, and he can see the promised land. But we don't know the name of that mountain, so that one's a, tr- a tricky one to name. Um, Ezekiel 40 also, at the very end of Ezekiel, there's a vision with a mountain, the new temple on this new mountain. Uh, so those are the ones I came up with. How about in Mark's... Go- uh, well, actually, let's pause there. If we're going to kind of pull it together, what tends to happen on these mountains? Are there some common, common things? Yeah, Lulu. Sacrifices are frequent, so let's see. Uh, Sacrifices here. Uh, well, I need to make a symbol. You don't you know, hear this is, this is an altar. Let's just say that it is. They sacrifice on Mount Sinai or near Mount Sinai. They sacrifice there, sacrifice there, sacrifice there. All the Old Testament mountains they sacrifice on. Yeah, good observation, Lulu. Yeah. uh, The temple's built on Mount Zion. The temple's built on Mount Zion. And and what's the temple all about? God. God's presence dwells there. People worship God. Yeah, and, and if we think about it, Genesis 22, Abraham encounters God. On, in this sort of trying test Mount Sinai, Israel encounters God, they renew their covenant with God God is encountered at the temple uh, Mount Carmel, yeah, so that seems to be a common feature, yeah, Abram um, I don't have anything that happened on him but I do remember I don't know the name of this mountain, but I know what happened on it okay Wrote the Ten Commandments on a mountain. Great job. Yeah, that's Mount Sinai. That's, uh, that's there. Yeah, good job. Yeah, that is an important thing that happened on a mountain. God revealed himself through his word. Yeah, Dan. Re- Abram Abraham beat you to it. Sorry. Uh, good job. Uh, yeah, yeah. God reveals himself. So what's that already queuing us up a little bit for in this story? An encounter with God, God revealing himself in a profound way. In the Gospel of Mark, we've also encountered a number of mountains. Jesus goes to the mountain to pray by himself. Jesus preaches from a mountain. In chapter 3, he calls disciples to himself on the mountain. And then as we move forward towards the Passion, mountains are going to figure prominently that he's, he's crucified on a mountain. Good brainstorming. Okay, there's an interesting thing that talking about the mountains first. Just backing up to that very first phrase, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Luke says about eight days later, he took Peter, James, and John. Is that a conflict? Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't think so. Eight days is after six days, uh, right? So it's, it's straightforwardly. But why would they use those different time references? I think probably what uh what uh mark is signaling us to here is in the book of exodus chapter 24 they're at mount sinai and we're told in verse 16 the glory of the lord dwelt on mount sinai and the cloud covered it six days and on the seventh day he called to moses out of the midst of the cloud Okay, so six days, and after the sixth day, then God calls Moses. I think Mark is using that. It is true, eight days is after six days, but I think he's using that to remind us a little bit, pointing us back to that Exodus story. Well, what happens? They come up to the mountain, and he was transfigured before them. Uh, It's a word that's not used very often in the Bible. I think four times he was in some way transformed He was profoundly changed. What does that mean? In some sense, his outward appearance or there was an outward disclosure of an inner reality, something that was there all along but was now seen in a more clear way. It stresses not just that he was transfigured, but he was transfigured before them, before their eyes. They saw something more clearly. Uh, trying to think of, uh, uh, you know, sort of possible illustrations. Uh, I think when you have lightning in the sky, uh, you have two, like a cold front and a hot front, and they collide together. And in that collision, it generates electricity and a loud thunderclap. Well, the, the fronts are there all along, the cold front, the hot front. The air is always there, but it's when they collide in that moment, for a second, we see the electricity light up the sky. It's something like that. Jesus, divine and human nature, they're there all along, and yet it's sort of like a flash of lightning, it lights up. Or maybe we could think you can look at the stars, and they kind of look like blurry dots depending on your vision, a lot of us have glasses, so, you know, you see the stars, but then when you look at the stars through a telescope, and all of a sudden you see that there's, you know, it's a whole constellation, there's a whole solar system, whatever it is, uh, it, you see it more clearly, more profoundly, Or a microscope, what just looks to be a smudge of dirt on a slide, now shows up more profoundly. He's transfigured, and his clothes become radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. That sounds a little bit like a challenge, doesn't it? Uh, like, uh, you know, these laundry commercials where the kids fall in the mud and then they bleach it and look how white their soccer uniform is. Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, it sounds a little bit like something like that, but what's this about? Radiant, intensely white, no one on earth could bleach them that white. Does that remind you of any other stuff in the Bible, maybe? Yeah, Jan. When Moses was guy, he came out, I mean, he was- yeah. He's in this, cl- Yeah, and he has to wear a veil over his face, but he's so bright, shining. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I can think of one other case, at least in Mark's gospel, where someone has bright, shining clothes on. We haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, that's right. The angel at the end of the gospel. Uh, yeah, we haven't gotten there yet, so, so it's a little bit cheating. But verse 5, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. Okay, so it's a, uh, a divine messenger, some, some symbol of, of divine presence. He's transformed in their midst. Then verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. Um, I, it probably should switch those uh, word order. The emphasis is on Moses appeared and Elijah is with him. And they were talking with Jesus. Well, there's a bunch of unanswered questions here. How did they recognize that these men were Elijah and Moses. There's no national portrait gallery that they went to to see what Moses looked like, Elijah looked like. How do they know? And even more importantly, what were they talking with Jesus about? This seems like of all the words you're going to record in the Gospel of Mark, these are words I want to know. Uh, Perhaps the disciples simply can't even overhear the conversation. It's just something that's happening. And what does this look, you know, what's going on here? They're going up the mountain. I guess Jesus gets ahead of them on the trail a ways because there seems to be some distance between the disciples and Jesus. And something happens, this bright flash, He becomes bright. They almost can't look at him. And then when they kind of their eyes, you know, like looking at the sun, your eyes kind of adjust. And all of a sudden they realize Moses and Elijah are there talking with him. It's, it's, it, it, there's unanswered questions here in this verse. But the point that it's stressing and is clear, even though we don't know what they're saying, is that Jesus comes on a mission that's in continuity with that of Moses and Elijah. Okay, it's not Moses failed, Elijah failed, so now we're going to try plan C, some third option. It's Jesus is coming to fulfill this ongoing plan that was working through Moses, through Elijah, through the whole of Scripture, what could we say, this is the in-breaking of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is his rule, his sovereignty over all things. And so Jesus coming to bring the kingdom, to proclaim the kingdom of God, it's in continuity with Moses saying, here's God's law, here's God's rule. It's in continuity with Elijah calling the king's back saying, don't go your own way, follow God's rule. And now Jesus' mission comes to do the same thing. The only place in the whole Bible where Moses and Elijah are mentioned together apart from the transfiguration is in Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, Malachi chapter four. I'm going to read uh, uh, four, four through six because it's an important section. It's right at the end of the book of Malachi. And so if you're thinking in terms of uh, especially the English Bible, this is the last thing that's written You know, the last thing we have before we turn over to the New Testament, Um, in the the order of the Hebrew Bible, it's a little bit different, but nevertheless, this is the last word from the prophets. Malachi 4, beginning at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, there's the mountain, uh, for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's a, that last little bit's interesting in light of this morning's sermon about passing on the wisdom from generation to generation, and the hearts of the generations being turned to each other. But that's the main thing: is Moses remember the law of my servant Moses? Behold, I will send you Elijah who prepares the way for the great and awesome day of the Lord. Okay, that seems to be the backdrop for what's happening here. Verses 5 and 6, Peter makes a suggestion. It's good that we're here. Thanks for bringing us on this trip. Can we make some tents? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So there's Peter's suggestion. And then in verse 6, it seems to be Mark's commentary on that suggestion. He's saying, don't exactly try and work out what Peter's thinking here. Uh, he didn't know what to say. They were terrified. Okay, this is kind of the suggestion he comes up with in the moment. Yeah, Nate. Going back to uh, in the of Jesus talking, kind of the Old Testament, when God came down and spoke to Moses, and Moses wrote down what God had said and to the people, and God here to Elijah um, on the mountain and spoke to Elijah, and we have recorded what God spoke to Elijah. It seems almost, maybe it's revelatory of who Jesus is. Yeah. this is the same person who spoke to Moses on the he, mountain. He's standing in the here's, place. Here's the same yeah. person who spoke to Elijah. You know what those conversations? But it's almost like a, a glimpse back. That's yeah, who Jesus is. Yeah, in a sense, he stands in the role of God in this, in this here. He's the same person who yeah. spoke, to Moses. Yeah. The same spoke to Moses. Yeah, I think, I think that's yeah, totally part of the symbolism here. Um, and then the, this is my son, listen to him, an emphasis on hearing his word. What's interesting, there's not really any response to Peter's um, proposal here. Jesus doesn't say good idea, bad idea, anything like that. It just kind of lets it hang out in the air there. Um, I think in part, we actually get the best sense of of, of kind of what to make of this in the beginning of the Gospel of John. Uh, In the Gospel of John, the first chapter, we're told the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I'm sure if you were here when uh, Pastor Burt's John series uh, or heard other sermons on John, uh, you've, you've heard this before that the word and dwelt among us as he set up a tabernacle in our midst He set a tent up with us. The word became flesh and and, and set up a tent among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. In a sense, it's, uh, Peter's missing the point to say we need to build a tabernacle here on this mountain because Jesus already is God's tabernacle. God's presence dwells in Jesus, and it's here on top of the mountain. Well then the cloud uh, descends over them before there's any response to Jesus or to Peter's suggestion. Do you remember a cloud on some of these mountains or other occasions in the Old Testament? Yeah, Eva. Yeah, on Mount Sinai, there's a cloud on the mountain, and there's a cloud on the mountain that he calls Moses up to the mountain out of. Yeah, good job. Yeah, and that cloud leads them through the wilderness. Uh, and then does anyone remember at the end of Exodus what happens? You didn't know you were going to get quizzed so much tonight. You were promised breakfast for dinner, and now it's all quiz. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the cloud that leads. Well, the cloud that leads them by day and the fire by night. But at the end of Exodus, uh, after they built the tabernacle in chapter 40, the cloud descends on the tabernacle and fills the tabernacle. And then moving forward from there, it says whenever God was there to talk with Moses, the cloud was on the tabernacle. And then in 1 Kings 8, after the temple is built on Mount Zion, uh, the cloud descends on the temple. Okay, so there's, again, that imagery coming of the cloud of God's presence is descended on this mountain. A voice comes from the cloud. A voice comes from heaven. Do you remember another ki- uh, a voice from heaven in the Gospel of Mark? At the baptism. And what does that voice say at the baptism? Yeah, and, and, and it actually... Um, it's in the second person at the baptism in 111. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In the baptism, it's a, a voice from God to Jesus, reassuring Jesus of his, uh, mis- uh, his identity, um, uh, confirmation to Jesus. You are my beloved son. I love you. I'm well pleased with you. Here it's in third person. It's, 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 it's talking to the disciples, as it were. This is my beloved son. It's confirming to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Well, here's a key voice from heaven saying how you should think about Jesus. This is my beloved son. But that takes time to percolate. It takes time to uh, blossom so that they fully understand it. Uh, Psalm 2, for example, says, Today you have become my son. It's a psalm where God's, in that portion, God's speaking to the king. And so they might be thinking, yeah, yeah, this makes sense. He's a king. He's coming. Uh, Jesus is the new king. Yeah, he's God's son in that sort of sense. And yet, Israel is never called God's, uh, or I could be wrong on this, but certainly no king is called God's beloved son, his one and only son, his only begotten son. It takes time to unpack. And so John, who's with Jesus here on the mountain, it's at the end of his life in his gospel that he really gets the sense of this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, it's finally clicking. I understand what that meant. And so then in, 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 in Mark's gospel, I think we've already talked about this once or twice, it's in, uh, I wrote 1639, but I don't think that's right. 1539, uh, at the crucifixion, after he dies, the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last and said, truly this man was the son of God. Okay, it finally clicks for him, but no disciple confesses it in the rest of the gospel. Not only is he my beloved son, listen to him. Okay, remember in the larger context, there's this ongoing debate between the disciples and Jesus. Uh, Remember Jesus rebukes Peter. Peter saying, no, you don't have to suffer. Uh, There's another way. Jesus says, get behind me. That's not the right way. There's this ongoing debate. Well, the voice says, this is the way we're going to go. Listen to him. And then the cloud apparently lifts, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only begins with them alone on a mountain with Jesus and it ends right back where it began alone on a mountain with Jesus there's a bit of this debate on the way down the mountain about Elijah and that stuff but let's just we'll take that next time I think we're drawing near to the time for prayer so let's let's turn unless there's any other questions or comments or observations Loud assertions? Yeah, yes, John and Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, in, in, talking about the cloud, didn't when, um, when they went into captivity or before that, didn't the cloud also leave? The yeah, cloud yeah, that's right. That's cloud right. Cloud Ezekiel has this vision of the glory cloud departing from from the temple and from Jerusalem and from the land. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Yeah, John. I was going to say, it also kind of shows the preeminence of Christ. Yeah. Here you have the law and the prophets, but Jesus, God says this Yes. Yes. Christ, the law and the prophets point to Christ. That's right. Yeah, uh, and in a sense, the the cloud lifts, and Moses and Elijah are gone. In a sense, they're eclipsed behind Christ, the definitive revelation of God. Yeah. Good. Good thought. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just think it's funny so to think about. Then Jesus is the next one that talks from heaven to Paul when he gets knocked off the horse. Yeah. Has, yeah. Why so, like, are persecuting me? Yeah. That's interesting. That's so cool. Yeah that voice from heaven yeah then is now is is become Jesus himself. Yeah that's a great a great connection. Okay. Well let's uh let's turn then to our time of prayer uh before dinner. Are there requests or Thanksgiving or anything? <laughs>